0: Let's talk about what we are going to do with today's political criminals beginning in January. In other words, let's talk about the Trump Crimes Commission. Because justice matters. <clears throat> hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Welcome to the debut of my podcast, Justice matters. We are going to try to take on big issues. Issues regarding the corruption, the crime, the abuse that's going on in our federal government today. We're going to talk about Donald Trump, his cabinet members, his family members, his enablers in Congress and outside of Congress. We're going to talk about where we are at this moment in history, because folks, I don't need to tell you, we are in a tough spot, but we're going to get through it. Justice is coming, and justice matters. Here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to have a conversation. I know that might sound strange because I'm sitting here behind a microphone, and y'all are listening to me talk, but I very much want this to be A conversation, not just a monologue. Um, And we're going to talk as we move through this podcast about how we can interact moving forward, how I can answer your questions, how we can talk, how we can connect, how I can try to help us all navigate this legal morass that we find ourselves in, where it seems like Trump and company can act with impunity, that like they're above the law, like no one can hold them accountable what we're gonna do is we are going to discuss and analyze the legal issues of the day. We're gonna then put them in context because frankly, what Donald Trump says today often relates to what Bill Barr said or did three days ago, which relates to some nonsense that Mike Pompeo pulled last week. So we're not just gonna talk about the legal issue of the day in isolation or in a vacuum, We're going to put it in the larger context, because only then can we make sense of it. Can we see what's really going on, what they're really trying to pull, what they're really doing to the United States and its people? And then, after we discuss and analyze the issue, we put it in context, we are going to propose solutions. We are going to talk about common sense ways to attack to wrestle with, or as Bill Barr might like to say, to grapple with solutions to these problems, because the solutions are out there. The solutions are out there, and we are going to talk about those solutions. Let me start with um, the perspective that I bring to this conversation that, that we're going to have. Because, you know, you have to figure out, you know, who in this who is this Glenn Kirshner guy all about? And is he somebody that I should listen to, that I should pay attention to? Are his ideas sound? Is it based on his experience or is it just a bunch of, you know, hypothesizing, if that's a word? Um, I'm a Jersey guy, so sometimes I don't talk good. You'll have to excuse me. Um, and the other thing I will tell you is because this is the debut of the podcast I also don't know a whole heck of a lot about putting podcasts together certainly not the technical end so let me warn you in advance you will probably hear glitches you will probably hear papers rustling i guess maybe i'm the only person who still does everything on a legal pad with a pen i don't carry a computer around with me i carry a legal pad and pens and pencils so you're going to hear from time to time something like this. So that was something that should probably be edited out. It's me rustling my papers, looking for the next thing I wanna say. So when you hear something like this that you don't hear in the more professional podcasts, we're gonna call that a behind the scenes glimpse when in fact, it's just kinda me screwing something up. So let me go back to my perspective. All right. What perspective do I bring to the conversation that we're going to have about justice? Well, I, br- I bring my perspective as a 30-year federal prosecutor. I started out in the 80s as an army jag, prosecuting court-martial cases and arguing criminal appeals for the government. In, in other words, sort of a, a prosecutor uh, in the appellate courts when I was an army jag. And then I transitioned to the US Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, which is part of the Department of Justice. And for nearly quarter of a century, I was a federal prosecutor in Washington, DC. I will say that I had the good fortune of being hired as a federal prosecutor by Eric Holder. Uh, Eric Holder gave me a shot at being a federal prosecutor and I will forever be grateful to Eric for giving me that shot. I then had the additional good fortune, after being at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. for a few years, of being um, brought to the homicide section by the chief of homicide at the time, Bob Mueller. So I got to work with, learn from, be supervised by Bob Mueller. Uh, I got to talk with him every day about my cases, about tactical decisions, about uh, plea Discussions and negotiations, basically every aspect of being a federal homicide prosecutor in Washington, D.C., I learned from Bob Mueller. So, we're going to talk a good bit about Bob Mueller in this episode and in future episodes. Um, And I will admit that I often have a hard time criticizing Bob Mueller, but I like to think I will call him as I see him. And if I disagree with something Bob Mueller did, then I am going to be upfront about it and we're going to talk about it. But um, that is my legal perspective. A uh, little more than 30 years as a federal prosecutor, first in the Army and then with the Department of Justice at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. Uh, I also ended up, after Bob Mueller left, as Chief of Homicide. A few years later, I became Chief of the Homicide Section at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So I had the remarkable experience and honor of supervising 30 men and women who were assistant United States attorneys prosecuting murder cases in Washington, D.C., and I was responsible for overseeing all murder prosecutions in our nation's capital. That was an honor. That was a challenge. That was a learning experience like no other. And I got to meet and know and work with hundreds and hundreds of homicide families. That's a title no family should ever have to bear, homicide family. And what I learned from those families is that when you lose a loved one to violent crime, your family is never the same. Your life is never the same. And we'll talk about that in future episodes. All of those homicide families live in my heart, and they always will. Uh, And I was honored to be able to help them through the most difficult ordeal of their lives, losing a loved one to violent crime and then being injected into the Byzantine world of police investigations and grand jury proceedings, trials and sentencing hearings. Um, Those are my professional experiences. So I lived inside the federal government for 30 plus years, so I'd like to think I have an informed perspective of what goes on inside the federal government, inside the Department of Justice, and I can tell you folks that I've seen the good, I've seen the bad, I've seen the ugly, I've seen the beautiful, I've seen the horrific, I've seen the charitable, I've seen the stingy, Um, I've seen some stuff. And I will, um, I will bring all of those experiences to bear on how I analyze legal issues, how we put them in context, and the solutions that we propose to deal with the problems of the day in this extended conversation that we're going to have. I will say that when I retired from the federal government on June 1st of 2018, I had another stroke of good luck because um, I was asked by MSNBC shortly before I retired to try to come on air and be a legal analyst. Um, And so I retired on June 1st, MSNBC put me on a train on June 2nd at Union Station in DC, uh, up to Penn Station in New York, to 30 Rock, and they put me on air nine times in three days. And they told me, you're going to sink or swim. And looking back at those first appearances, I definitely took on some water. um, But I think I managed to swim more than I managed to uh, drown. So I was offered a contract as an NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst. And I do that work to this day. And I do it um, with, uh, with gratitude, having even a very, very small Uh, voice in the national discussion about Trump and um, what we are all contending with at this moment in time. And that's work that I thoroughly enjoy and I will continue doing. Um, I will say one of the challenges of being an MSNBC legal analyst is you have about two, three, four minutes to analyze an issue, to put it in the larger context and propose a solution Um, which is difficult to impossible to do. You know, I had the good fortune a couple of nights ago of being on uh, with Joy Reid on her new show, The Readout, which is terrific. And I had a one-on-one conversation for five minutes with Joy, and I felt like it was the most extended conversation I've had on TV in a while. So there's so much to um, to be addressed in the crimes and abuses in our federal government that we see unfolding every day, right before our eyes, really in the full, harsh light of day. And it's hard to sum them up in two, three, four minute sound bites. So that's why I'm so gratified that we will have this extended conversation to really take on these legal issues of the day, put them in context, and propose solutions. So, what you'll get from me, from all of that, from my 30 years as a Fed from my work as an NBC, MSNBC legal analyst, from my life experiences of raising five daughters and a son, that is a learning experience as well. Um, You will get unvarnished, hard-hitting, candid, unapologetic commentary and discussions because at this moment in history, you know, we are at a place where I would say... Decency is engaged in a bare knuckle fist fight with indecency. You know, diversity is involved in a bare knuckled fist fight with prejudice and hate and xenophobia. Kindness is involved in a bare knuckled fist fight with cruelty, compassion with callousness. In short, justice is in a bare knuckled fist fight with injustice and if there was ever a time in our country's history that justice matters it is right now it is right now and that's why we're going to talk about justice matters and that was a page flip and that's a behind the scenes glimpse um so before i turn to today's topic the trump Crimes Commission, and how we're going to go about holding today's political criminals accountable beginning in January. Let me just um, tell you where else you can find me. I assume that if you've made your way to my podcast, you may have already been engaged with me on Twitter. I have lots of folks that I've connected with on Twitter. I don't like to use the term followers because I follow them as much as they follow me. I learn from them as much, if not more, than they learned from me. But what I have done over the years is I try to answer people's questions on Twitter every single day, their legal questions, as best I can, bringing my experience to bear on whatever the question happens to be, because people need answers. People need to understand what's going on with Trump and company. People need context, and they need hope. And there is hope, not false hope, not Pollyanna hope. There is hope. And we're going to talk about that, but you can connect with me on Twitter. We are team justice on Twitter, hashtag team justice. We've built a team and I love interacting with our teammates every single day on Twitter. Glenn Kirshner two is my, I don't know, handle or my name, whatever they call it. Someday I hope to graduate to Glenn Kirshner one, but as, as of right now, it's Glenn Kirshner two. You can also catch me on YouTube. If you haven't seen my videos, I post a video a day. Uh, a Trump crime a day, a bill bar abuse of the rule of law de jour. Um, and I have been posting videos every day for the last hundred plus days. And it's an uphill battle. It's a grind, but it is something of uh, it, it's my way of basically um Continuing my public service that started as a federal prosecutor, I consider these YouTube videos to be like public service announcements or as best I can come up with a public service announcement. And this will sound corny, but I also feel like my YouTube videos are love letters to the Republic, to the country that I love, to the country that I served for 30 years. And I try my best to continue to serve today. And then one last thing, just today we started... A Patreon page, and if you don't know what that is, um, Patreon is a site that you can go to if you want to support my content. And I welcome you. I'd be gratified if you found this content worthy enough that you would want to go and support it. Um, you can go to Patreon.com. You can support um, what we're doing here with Justice Matters, and it gives you different opportunities to select the level of support. Um, and you know, one level will provide um, ad-free podcasts. One will provide early access and and some content that's not otherwise public. And, and then one level um, actually involves an hour-long Q&A session on Zoom every week. And frankly, that is what I am so looking forward to, to talking with you all every week, answering your questions, and importantly, whether you subscribe to Patreon or not. Um, I'm hoping you will leave comments either on my YouTube channel or on Patreon or, you know, connect with me on Twitter and tell me not only what your questions are, but what topics you'd like me to cover on this podcast. And importantly, what guests do you want me to invite? Who do you want to hear from? Because, you know, a guest may be of interest to me, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be of interest to you. So I really want to hear from you. And when I say I want this to be a conversation and a community and a team, team justice, you know. I mean it. I mean it. Um, So I look forward to connecting with all of you in every way we can on every platform. With that, let's turn to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is what do we do with all of the governmental crimes and all of the political criminals that populate Donald Trump's administration? And Congress at the moment. And we'll talk about why I include Congress in that. And what do we do about it? There's a page flip. That's some behind the scenes uh, information right there. So here's what I want to start with, folks. Um, Somebody that I've gotten to know a little bit, uh, mainly in green rooms, is Congressman Eric Swalwell. And I admire him and I have great respect for him. As you all probably know, he was a presidential candidate this uh, last go-round, and he sent a tweet out yesterday that just dovetails beautifully with our topic for today, because here is what Congressman Swalwell said. Quote, I don't say this lightly. When we escape this Trump hell, America needs a presidential crimes commission. It should be made up of independent prosecutors who look at those who enabled a corrupt president. Example one, sabotaging the mail to win an election. Hashtag save the post office. So Eric Swalwell, member of Congress, has called formally for a presidential crimes commission. You know what has a nice ring to it, folks? The Trump Crimes Commission. And I have been tweeting about it, talking about it on podcasts, on radio shows, two people at Starbucks, three people at Safeway, anybody who is interested and willing to talk or listen, I have been talking about the Trump Crimes Commission. I've been talking about the need, the non-negotiable need, for a commission to investigate and present evidence to the grand jury about all of the crimes that have been committed by Trump and company over the last three and a half years, soon to be four years. You know, we need to hold these folks accountable. And I say, this is a non-negotiable principle. Why do I say it's non-negotiable? because what I've come to know in my 30 years as a prosecutor dealing with victims, and in homicide cases, the family members of victims who are victims themselves, what I've learned is that there can be no healing without accountability. There can be no deterrence of future criminal conduct without accountability. There can be no justice without accountability ability. You know, you can't, you can't turn the other cheek when somebody has been victimized and heal. You can't let bygones be bygones when somebody has been victimized and expect a victim to heal. Let me use a hypothetical. Let's assume that you have a robbery victim, a burglary victim, a rape victim. I've tried all of those kinds of cases. Let's assume that the prosecutor, the representative of their government, who is duty-bound to address that person's victimization, let's assume that that person says to the victims, you know, I think the way for you to heal, I think the way for you to put this nightmare behind you is for us, for the federal government, for the prosecutors to decline, to hold the person who victimized you accountable. That's the way you can heal. Are you kidding me? That is not the way to heal. It's the opposite of healing. It's the opposite of deterrence. It's the opposite of justice declining to hold criminals accountable for their crimes. People will say that, well, you know, once Biden takes over in January, he can't go after the old Trump gang, the Trump officials, because that would look vindictive. That would look punitive. That would look like political retribution. So, you know, we can't do that can I use another hypothetical, folks? Let's assume that a bank robbery is committed in Washington, D.C. And a bank robbery, as you may know, is a federal crime. You know, if you rob a 7-Eleven, if you rob a, a McDonald's, if you rob a Safeway, those aren't federal crimes. But a bank robbery is a federal crime. Why is that? Because the funds, the money in the bank, are guaranteed by the federal government they're insured by the federal government so that's what makes a bank robbery a federal offense whereas robbing a you know a 711 or a wawa not a federal offense so let's assume that a bank robby, robbery goes down in dc and it's on videotape and the defendant's fingerprints and dna are on the scene and the bank teller can identify the defendant and you know There's no such thing as an open and shut case, but it couldn't possibly be any stronger. Let's also assume that the FBI interviewed the bank robber and he confessed to committing the crime. But it turns out that the bank robber is actually a high dollar donor to the Trump campaign. Turns out the bank robber is a close associate and a business uh, ally of Donald J. Trump and his family. So what happens? Well, Bill Barr says, we're not prosecuting this bank robber because he's a high dollar donor to Donald J. Trump. Now, that's not what Bill Barr would say publicly. He would say we found some deficiency in the evidence and, you know, he would cook up some reason, like he did with Mike Flynn trying to get rid of his case. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that. He'll cook up some reason, but the reality is he's doing a favor though for Donald J. Trump because we know that Bill Barr doesn't support and defend the Constitution of the United States. He doesn't represent the interests of we the people as he is duty-bound to do. He represents the interests. He supports and defends Donald J. Trump. So he does not allow criminal investigations of anybody in Donald Trump's executive branch. So let's assume in this bank robbery hypothetical that Bill Barr says, nope, not doing it, not prosecuting this bank robber because he's one of Trump's men. Come January, when we have a law-abiding president, and that president, Joe Biden, appoints a law-abiding attorney general, is there anybody who would say, yeah, you know, you can't go after that bank robber because Bill Barr and the prior administration decided that they they wouldn't bring charges against that bank robber. So this would be punitive. This would be the party in power, the Democrats, just, you know, seeking revenge against the Republicans. No, nobody would say that. In fact, they would say the bank robber should have been prosecuted for the bank robbery he committed, you know, By Bill Barr's Department of Justice. That's who should have prosecuted him. But because justice was delayed and Bill Barr, for improper reasons, declined to prosecute that bank robber, that bank robber must be prosecuted in January if justice is to be done. I hope there's nobody that would disagree with that proposition. That is justice being done. That's not revenge. That's not injustice. The only injustice is Bill Barr doing Donald Trump a favor, though, by not prosecuting his high-dollar donor who committed a bank robbery. Well, folks, the same principle applies to political crimes. Let me use another hypothetical, and let's make Mike Pompeo the subject of this hypothetical. And this is going to be sprinkled with a lot of real facts facts are stubborn things. So let's assume Mike Pompeo was being investigated by the inspector general for the State Department, a guy named Steve Linick. And let's assume investigator general Linick was looking into Mike Pompeo for a couple of reasons. One, for allegedly misusing some resources of the State Department and some personnel for his own personal, you know, reasons. And two, because he entered into a shady $8 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia after Congress said they were not interested in entering into that deal. So let's assume the inspector general was investigating Mike Pompeo for at least those two transgressions. And let's assume Mike Pompeo fired the inspector general to shut down that investigation. And let's assume that After he fired the inspector general, Congress said, we have got to look into this in our oversight capacity because that's kind of our constitutional responsibility. So they issue lawful congressional subpoenas for State Department employees so they can investigate not only Mike Pompeo's shady Saudi Arabian deal, not only Mike Pompeo's alleged you know misuse of State Department resources, but his firing of the Inspector General to shut down the investigation. And what does Mike Pompeo do when his employees, the State Department employees, receive those lawfully issued congressional subpoenas? He orders them not to appear, which, by the way, is a criminal offense obstructing a congressional inquiry. He orders them not to appear, which frankly, folks, is a cover-up of the cover-up. Let's assume, just stay with me here, folks, let's assume that when you ball that all up and you crack open the Federal Code of Criminal Offenses, you see that that conduct by Mike Pompeo constitutes multiple federal crimes. But Bill Barr is not going to open an investigation into him. So now when Joe Biden gets elected in January and appoints a law-abiding and a law-enforcing attorney general, are you telling me that it is somehow political retribution or you know retaliation or revenge that the Democrats would be involved in against the Republican Party if they just decided to bring the criminal charges against Mike Pompeo in my hypothetical for the crimes Mike Pompeo committed? The answer is no, of course it's not political. It's not revenge. It's not retribution. It's not so-called victor's justice, which is a pejorative term used when the party in power goes after the party that used to be in power just because they're different parties, not because the party that used to be in power committed crimes. So this is why there has to be, there has to be a full, fair, aggressive, honest, ethical, apolitical, nonpartisan investigation of all of the crimes committed by Trump and company. And how do we go about doing that? The way we go about doing that is we get into the grand jury the minute after Joe Biden is sworn in. I mean, shoot, I volunteer to go into the grand jury. I spent countless, and when I say countless, I really do mean countless, countless hours in grand juries in Washington, D.C., presenting every scrap of relevant evidence I could when I was investigating crime and examining every witness that I thought could provide any information relevant to my investigation. And yes, if they were unwilling to be forthcoming and tell the truth, I pushed them hard. I tried to squeeze every drop of truthful information out of them because that's my job. That's my responsibility to the victims and to the community, to the country. So the minute after Joe Biden is sworn in, prosecutors flood the grand juries with evidence. We investigate every flippin' suspected crime of every flippin' Trump administration official. Right? Mike Pompeo and Bill Barr. Mike Pence. Let's not forget, they don't have to be government officials. Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared. But, I mean, the Mnuchins and the Rosses and the Wheelers and the DeVosses and the... That's what we need to do. We need to get into the grand jury. Why? Because the grand jury is the conscience of the community. The grand jury are in there, and in an apolitical way, they are listening to the evidence that is presented. And can I tell you a little bit of inside baseball when it comes to the grand jury folks? And I can tell grand jury stories all day long without violating 6E, the rule against Um, disclosing improperly disclosing matters before the grand jury evidence before the grand jury but can i tell you that the grand jury um, not only sits and listens to incriminating information but the department of justice guidelines provide that we as prosecutors must also present to the grand jury non-incriminating information, or what we call exculpatory information. So if I'm investigating a murder, and I have three eyewitnesses that identify my target, the target that I'm intending to indict, the person suspected of the murder, if I have three identifying eyewitnesses who say the defendant did it, but I have one who says the defendant didn't do it, gives them an alibi, I am obliged to present that information to the grand jury, because we have to give. It's the right thing to do. It's not required constitutionally, but it's the right thing to do, and our procedures require it. We give the grand jury all of the evidence, the good, the bad, the ugly, the incriminating, the exculpatory, and then we ask them to make a fair decision about whether there's enough evidence to indict and whether the person should be indicted. That's what has to be done here. We package up all of the evidence. We grand jury subpoena all of the witnesses who know anything about the crimes committed by Donald Trump and company. And we march into the grand jury and we present it all to them. And then we live with the grand jury's decision because as the conscience of the community, they serve as a check and balance against prosecutorial overreach and abuse. We present all of the evidence to them. And then, you know what? If they say, geez, we've heard it all, but we don't think there's enough evidence to indict Like Pompeo for crimes X, Y, and Z, then we live with that. We don't try to, you know, push an unfair indictment through the grand jury. We don't bring ham sandwiches into the grand jury. I know we've all heard the saying that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Can I tell you folks, there's a legal term for that, it's BS. I never saw a ham sandwich in the grand jury, figuratively speaking. I certainly never brought one in. I never presented one to the grand jury. And honest, ethical prosecutors don't pull that kind of nonsense. Is every prosecutor honest and ethical? No. Is every defense attorney honest and ethical? No. Is every judge honest and ethical? No. But the overwhelming majority of all of those categories of public servants are honest and ethical. So I don't buy into the ham sandwich grand jury line. So there are so many crimes that we could begin to discuss that we will have to tackle beginning in January. Here's a behind the scenes glimpse. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not... I'm not perfect at this podcast stuff, folks, but I'll I'll get better. I promise. No, maybe not. Um, There's so many crimes. Let's just touch on a few because we've already been at it for going on 40 minutes. Um, Let's just talk briefly about a few of the crimes. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. Okay. For those of you scoring at home, that's 18 United States Code Section 371. 18 U.S.C. 371. Uh, There will not be a quiz at the end of this podcast, but some people like those kind of details. This is an incredibly broad statute, and I contend that we have seen conspiracies to defraud the United States, conspiracies to commit offenses against the United States, unfolding before our eyes day by day by day by day, with lots of co-conspirators involved. And quick footnote, a conspiracy is nothing more than an agreement between Two or more people to commit crime, to do crime, and one step toward the commission of that crime, which we call an overt act. So if two people agree to do crime and they take one step toward the commission of the crime, they don't have to commit it, they've committed a conspiracy, and a conspiracy is a separate charge. So if I engage in a conspiracy to rob a bank and then I rob a bank with my co conspirator, I've committed two crimes, more than two, but at least two. Conspiracy to rob, and bank robbery. Okay, And the nice feature about conspiracy law is that because the law believes that joint criminal action between or among multiple people is more dangerous to society than individual criminal action, the law holds all co-conspirators responsible. They're all guilty of every single crime committed by the conspiracy, regardless of whether they participated in that crime personally or not. And we're going to talk about conspiracy in the future because we're going to have to do a whole episode on Donald Trump bribing and or extorting President Zelensky because that's a big old conspiracy. And it's going to have to be tackled beginning in January. But, you know, when you have Donald Trump telling President Zelensky I know you want these congressionally appropriated funds to protect your people, your Ukrainian people, against unlawful Russian aggression, but I need a favor though. He had no right to attach that condition to those congressional funds. I need a favor though. I need you to step to the microphone and announce a bogus investigation into my opponent, Joe Biden. And by the way, in furtherance of this criminal scheme, Donald Trump might as well have said to President Zelensky, I want you to get with my men, Rudy Giuliani and Bill Barr. Whoops, there you go. Rudy and Billy Boy are co-conspirators by Donald Trump's own words. Who else is a co-conspirator? How about Mick Mulvaney, who, when the administration got caught, when OMB got caught withholding those funds and attaching personal conditions as political favors to, to Donald Trump, what did Mick Mulvaney say? We do it all the time. Get over it. I would tell Mick Mulvaney, we bring conspiracy charges all the time as career prosecutors. Get over it. And there were more conspirators in that crime to extort or bribe President Zelensky. You know, remember Mike Pompeo pulling Ambassador Marie Ivanovich out of Ukraine? She's an actual justice fighter, and she was standing in the way of this corrupt deal, of this corrupt conspiracy? They might want to get over the fact that they are potentially marquee defendants in a big old conspiracy indictment beginning in 2021. But that is just one of the crimes, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, And let me talk about, behind the scenes, Glenn? Let me just talk for a minute about conspiracy to defraud the United States, and then we're going to save all of the other crimes for future podcasts. Conspiracy to defraud the United States is an incredibly broad criminal statute. It casts a wide criminal net, and here's the beauty of it, folks. You just need to look at the DOJ website because it talks about conspiracy to defraud the United States. Here's what it says. You ready? It says, the statute is broad enough in its terms to include any conspiracy for the purpose of impairing, obstructing, or defeating the lawful function of any department of government. Hmm, where have we seen conduct that had the purpose of impairing a lawful function of government? Could it be Donald Trump ordering all of his executive branch officials not to comply with lawfully issued congressional subpoenas? Does that have the effect of impairing the lawful function of any department of government? How about slowing the mail? How about slowing the mail? Does that have the effect of potentially impairing A function of any department of government? You know what that has the effect of, folks. Donald Trump and Louis DeJoy, his postmaster general, are at this very moment as we speak, and they have been for some time in a conspiracy to interfere with the department of the government and a conspiracy to interfere in the free and fair elections with the right of the people to vote. And That is something that must be addressed today and tomorrow and every day between now and the election and come January. It's on and it needs to get into the grand jury because what Donald Trump and Louis DeJoy are doing to the Postal Service right now, delaying the mail, right? So people aren't getting their checks on time, checks they need to live. People aren't getting their bills on time. I don't like getting bills any more than anybody else. But you know what? If I don't get my bill on time, then I'm going to have a a late fee, a penalty to pay. And then I'm going to be in a deeper financial hole. Seniors aren't getting their medicines by mail. Veterans aren't getting their medicines by mail. All courtesy of a criminal conspiracy, it seems, between Donald Trump and his unqualified, corrupt Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Folks, I could spend the next several hours talking about many, many other crimes. We're going to cover them in the future, because whether it's obstruction of Congress or witness tampering or false statements to Bob Mueller during his investigation or campaign finance violations, and we could go on, all those crimes have been committed, and they'll all be investigated in the grand jury. And if the evidence supports it, they will all be indicted. And these people will be tried. And if the evidence supports a guilty verdict, these people will be convicted by a jury of their peers. And if the judge deems it appropriate, these people will be imprisoned for what they did to the American people, to the immigrants who come to this country wanting to be part of the American dream, only to be thrown in cages, separated from their children, for what these people did to the country, to the American people, and to the immigrants who come here looking for a better way of life, they will be held accountable. Justice is coming, and justice matters. It matters. So in the future, we're going to talk about other solutions to the problems, like Mitch McConnell's packing of the courts with unqualified judges trying to Debase and degrade the quality of our federal judiciary. Oh, there's a way to deal with that. It's called unpacking the courts, and there's a three part plan to make that happen. We're going to talk about police reform because there is a way to reform the problems, the chronic problems, and abuses that we have seen perpetrated against our minority brothers and sisters, our African American brothers and sisters, and I can't believe it took George George Floyd to get us here. But we're going to talk about a three-part plan to reform policing so that it works for everybody. Everybody. We're going to talk about how to defeat Donald Trump's weaponization of the courts because he loses every court case. He loses every court battle, but he delays, 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 delays. And by losing He wins because he runs out the clock. There is a way to defuse Donald Trump's weaponization of the courts. It's called the Inter Branch Dispute Court. And it's imminently doable, folks. Imminently doable. And we have to do it beginning in January. There are so many solutions that are just waiting, they're within our grasp. And we are going to start implementing them. I am confident in a Joe Biden administration. Before I sign off this um, debut podcast, I want to thank a few people, um, because I would succeed at exactly nothing in my life without the support and the love of these people, um, starting with my mother and father, Ruth and Louis Kirshner, uh, both of whom are deceased in recent years. Um, thank you, mom and dad. My six kids, f- uh, five daughters, Kate, Kelly, Megan, Molly, and Emma, and one son, Kian they are, have all contributed to the success of this podcast in one way or another, and everything else I do. I want to say thank you to my in-laws, Mary and Assad, because especially with the passing of my parents, they are my parents, and their love and support has been steadfast and is so very appreciated. Um, I want to thank my friend Cam, Cameron, who actually came up with the name Justice Matters which I love and I wasn't creative enough to come up with it myself, but, you know, it has two meanings, obviously. We talk about matters involving justice and the criminal justice system and justice matters. So uh, I appreciate you coming up with the title of the podcast, Cam, and then uh, last and certainly not least, my wife, Nilufar, who um, is, well, the executive producer of All things um, that I do or attempt to do and is the perfect partner in this podcast and in my life. So thank you to everybody for helping me, you know, get off my duff and put this podcast together. And folks, I am so excited about the conversations that we are going to have and the team we are going to build and the justice we are going to do together today tomorrow and every day between now and January and then the hard work of justice begins and justice can be exhausting but it's also energizing so um, buckle up and um, and I look forward to talking with you all uh, next week um, again I hope you'll go to Twitter Glenn Kirshner too I hope you'll tune into my YouTube videos under my name Glenn Kirshner. that's the name of my channel I hope you'll consider becoming a patron, going to Patreon, and supporting our content because we can't do this without you. And um, then I look forward to talking with you again next week on the next episode of Justice Matters.